This is an ABC podcast. Aussies are known for being battlers. Whatever life throws at us, we bounce back every time. Hey, I'm Dina Lynch. I'm an Aussie musician and I'm obsessed with stories that overcome hardship. And that is why I am here. This is Tall Tales and True, the podcast where we find and bring you the best stories told by Aussies live around the country. Stories where people have life-changing moments, then get on stage to tell us about it. Today, Gladys Docking is sharing the story of every parent's worst nightmare. Gladys's daughter was crushed by a horse in remote Australia. On the Spun Stories stage in Darwin, Gladys shows us that you can't keep a good woman down. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to us. It was um, 8th of September 2002. Um, I was in Alice Springs at a primary school national softball championship when I got the dreaded phone call from the police. The message was that my daughter had had an accident camp drafting. She was on her horse chasing a steer around the designated cloverleaf course that they have to do. At speed, the horse was very, very close, right up on the rump of the little steer, and the steer changed directions. It was too quick for the horse to correct itself, so the horse's front legs collided with the steer's back legs, and down went the steer, down went the horse, down went Keita, and then the horse did a somersault over the top of Keita and just totally squashed her brain. Um, No chipped tooth, no broken bones, nothing, just a totally squashed brain. Uh, The next thing I remember, I was being marched into the ICU at Darwin Hospital, and as I walked through the doors, lined right around the room was a whole series of beds, all with their own little spotlights, bodies on them. Um, Each bed, each body had a nurse, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of metres of cables and and um, tubes and machines buzzing and whirring and pumping. And centre stage was this other bed with what seemed to be a bigger spotlight. That was where I was taken and that was Keita, looking same as all the others, but in a shape that I just didn't recognise. Her head was just so massive, so massively swollen that I just kept looking and, and, and I really didn't recognise her. But I took her hand and she opened her eyes and just looked at me. And the look was a look of, help me, mum, help me, and then she was out. Well, that was the beginning of um, 12 weeks of hope, no hope, fear, courage, depression, anxiety, elation, just a whole mixture of things for 12 weeks while she was in a coma. Um, After about three or four days, they had given up on the medication trying to bring the um, pressure in her brain down, so they stopped the medication... Uh, they took her up into surgery, took out all the, the forehead bone and brought it back down <laughs> with a sticker that said no bone. And I thought, God. <laughs> and that was just because they're not really used to handling someone with no bone in the top of their head, apparently. Anyway, about a week after that, Dr Death, as we called him, was this chief anaesthetist who just boomed death. It was always death. He came in and told us that they, were, they stopped the chemicals 
and they needed three weeks to allow the chemicals to just come right out of the system so that they could see whether her brain was dead because they thought it was and then it would be time to just switch off all um, life support. Well, obviously brain wasn't dead because Keita, who always had a mind of her own anyway, must have heard him because the very next day she started to breathe. She started tripping out the breathing machine. She wasn't going to have a bar of it. And so suddenly it was like, well, you didn't kill her. She's alive. So then we had to start working on, on um, trying to make things better. I had determined then that she was alive. It was going to be hard for me to look after her, so I had to do what I could, even though the doctors, based on their statistics, said she would never be have any intelligence, she would never be any good, just permanent vegetative state. At one stage, the very best we could get out of the doctors was that after, it would probably take about five years, but she could possibly sit in an electric wheelchair without being totally strapped in because... Um, her body would have absolutely no, no control. Um, and he said that there may well be just enough intelligence to teach her to use the, the um, to steer the chair with her chin, but he didn't really think that that was possible because he really didn't believe that there was any intelligence and that there never would be. So after, um, after about 12 weeks of, of, this, of going through this, Keita finally responded to the doctors and um, moved her fingers and squeezed their hands and did all those things they do. It's not like in the movies. They don't just wake up and say, oh, where am I? My makeup, is my makeup all right? It just doesn't happen that way. <laughs> Believe me, it doesn't happen. Anyway, after the 12 weeks, then they sent us off to Adelaide to um, a brain injury unit in Adelaide at um, Hampstead for um, further treatment. And as we found out later, the further treatment really, the letter that went with her stated that PVS and... Um, just to stabilise her and get her set up in an electric wheelchair. We didn't know that at the time, and I'm glad I didn't know it, but when I did find out, there was, I wasn't going to accept that anyway. Um, she'd been at Hampstead for about five days when the chief um, rehab specialist came in to do their, these monstrous tests, these international tests that they do to test people's intelligence. They're set up to make them fail. They honestly are. They're not meant to pass these things. Who's the Prime Minister? You know, you've got someone who's still semi-conscious. Who's the Prime Minister? What date is it? Well, she's been asleep for 12 bloody... for 12 weeks. How does she know what date it is? <laughs> God. <laughs> and where do you live? Well, she just looked at me. She didn't know where she was at the time. And I, I asked her, I said, well, where does Mum and Dad live? And she said, Berry Springs. And, and this specialist just looked at me like, you know, who the hell are you to interfere anyway? But what, And I said, well, that's right, that is where we live. She doesn't live there. She could live under a gum tree another bushy, you know. And I said, well, it's because she works out on a station. She doesn't live anywhere. They, they're always on the move. Anyway, these questions went on for a while and she just kept failing, failing, failing and getting really frustrated because she, I don't know, I don't know. And um, so then he asked her about a double vision and out of the blue, Keita said, I haven't got any. And he said, yes, you have. She said, I have not got it. He said, well, then read something. And he showed her something on the cupboard and she read it. And he looked at her and he looked at the, all the little followers that were with him and um, said, well, cover your eyes. So she covered, he covered one eye and she read it, covered the other eye, she read it. And he turned around and said to them, that wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and from that time on, everything changed. The, the whole attitude towards Keita changed. There was something there. There was intelligence there and it wasn't meant to be there according to what they'd been told. So 
her, her um, rehab in, in Hampstead was a lot, lot better. They got her up on her feet, got her walking. And, and my son and I, because we really wanted to make sure that she was better than they said she was going to be, we did a lot of things behind closed doors. We had, a, we had her eating hamburgers long before the speech therapist said she could, you know. <laughs> but um, it was good. We paid off in the end. After six months, Keita started to resist and um, dislike therapies and things. So I figured it was time for us to come home, let someone else who, who was in a critical state have the bed. We came back to Darwin. Um, went to rehab in Darwin and after a couple of weeks, the same international stories, international questions designed to make them fail. And after the doctor had asked her a couple of questions, Keita just looked at him and she said, why don't you ask me something about cattle? And he just looked and he said, I don't know anything about cattle. And she said, I don't know anything about this fucking shit you're asking me. I... And that is Keita and that's her, that is actually how she goes. But he did turn around and he said, well, there's nothing really wrong with her. <laughs> Which we knew. Her one desire was to get back on her horse, Brumby, her horse, and through the, with the help of RDA and with the help of other friends, eventually she got back on her horse and it was just... I get, a, I get a bit emotional here, but it was just one of the best things you could ever imagine to see her up on her horse with the biggest smile and actually controlling that horse and riding that horse that she'd had the accident on. They were always close and they're still close. She, it, was, it was magic. I'm sorry, but it was. And it, and it proved to me that don't disregard the doctors. Don't, when the doctors tell you something, don't just ignore it. They're telling you for a reason. They've got the statistics. But you know what? Just put that in, the, in a little box there so that if you need to refer to it, you can. Otherwise, go your own way and fight. Don't give up. Just fight. It's happened with Keita and now she's a competent rider again. She's riding competitions. And, <laughs> and we're not going to stop. We're going to keep on going. She's just going to keep getting better. In a few weeks' time, we're hoping there's a physio coming up from Melbourne who is quite certain he can make her jump and run. So let's hope he does. But we are not giving up, and it's been 13 years, but it's been 13, 13 years of good times, bad times, but we aren't going to sit back in our little hell hole and feel sorry for ourselves. You've just got to get out there, and that's what we've done. We're happy. She's doing well. Thank you. This story was first aired on Spun Stories, a live storytelling podcast created in Darwin. For more stories like this, go to spunstories.net. I'm Dina Lynch, and if you love these stories as much as I do, then leave a review or tell your friends about us. We could all use a little resilience in our lives right now. From another beautiful episode of this season of Tall Tales and True. We lifted his casket. And as we carried it down the aisle, I saw a familiar face. The guy from Club 80 last night. He saw me too, and he smiled. And I thought, I just got cruised at my boyfriend's funeral. Find it wherever you get your podcasts or 
on the ABC Listen app. Looking for something to listen to next? May I suggest something? There's a podcast called Conversations. It's conversations with some of the world's most fascinating people. And one of the most listened to episodes ever is a guy called Ben Crow. He is Ash Barty's mindset coach. His whole job is making people more resilient. And unanimously, every client all over the world said the same thing. They said they reckon the world's trying to tell us to stop doing and start being, <laughs> to do less and, and be more, yeah, be more connected to myself or family or friends and to stop saying busy when someone says, how are you? You know, yeah, when, since when did busy become an emotion? Fascinating. That's Ben Crow on Conversations. Just search for Conversations in the ABC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts.